Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends, a podcast from your friends at MI6 HQ and the magazine MI6 Confidential. I'm Paul Atkins. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome David Lee, Dr. Lisa Funnel, Sean Longmore and Bill Koenig. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, this is David Lee here. I run the jamesbonddossier.com. I'm also author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond and I'm coming to the end of a post-workout rum and coke. <laughs> Um, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster who specializes in gender in James Bond and other action films. And I am drinking my recent discovery of a London Fog Tea Latte, which is absolutely delicious. I have it with almond milk. Oat milk, sorry. I had this one with oat milk. um, And it's absolutely yummy. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm in awe now. That sounds really fancy. (laughs) Um, Hi, I'm Sean Longmore and I'm a graphic designer. Um, I do fan art for the fan project and I've done some James Bond ones and I've been a James Bond fan for all my life. Um, And I'm being really wild with my drink tonight and I'm drinking apple juice. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command. And if you are a Pierce Brosnan fan and have no idea who Dr. Fate is, Go check out uh, my blog. I have a one post. It's a short introduction to the character that uh, super superhero sorcerer that brought you know the one time James Bond is going to play in an upcoming movie. Mm. When you said one time, I thought no, he definitely did four. But you, I can see where you block a few of them out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he, <laughs> words, he used to be James Bond and isn't anymore. That's how I meant it. <laughs> one time, four times, <laughs> but not for a long time. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, so today on the show, we're going to try a little concept where I've asked my guests with varying stages of notice to uh, bring to the table some suggestions for what you would introduce or what you would use to introduce a fan to the James Bond franchise or a potential fan to the James Bond franchise. Um, So that could be what films would you introduce to people and in what order would you do them? What are some sort of, I guess, trinkets or items from from the franchise that you think might sort of help to explain to somebody why you're really interested in the subject, why you're really interested in the James Bond franchise. But first, I'd like to have a little more sort of free-flowing conversation perhaps about what is it that makes a James Bond film a James Bond film? What is it that's special, essential about essential about a James Bond, essential about the James Bond franchise? What are some of the elements that make it up? And why is it so long-lasting and why do we like it so much? What is it that appeals to us about those things? What about the formula is good? Something in that hopefully should spark some conversation. So um, can I ask somebody to take it away from here? Can I take a stab? I mean, in my mind, James Bond, he's not necessarily the smartest hero, but he's a certainly stylish hero. And going all the way back to the books, he's also, he's, he can endure an incredible amount of punishment. And I guess he just has more desire than the, uh, than the bad guys he opposes. It's a combination of style and desire, I guess. Yeah, I'll, um, I, I agree with that. They weren't what uh, came to my mind immediately. But one of, the, one of the things that I've always been attracted to in both the, the books and the films are, are the locations. And Ian Fleming painted those, those locations very, very vividly. And so, you know, as a eight, nine, ten and teenager kid, uh, I just love it. Loved reading it about them. I, I've always, um, I've always loved travel and you know, and just being able to to mentally see the, these these places just um, really really brought the novels to life for me. In the films, it, the early ones, you know, like Doctor No, um, 
from from Russia with Love, Thunderball, and Goldfinger. Not in that order, but uh, it, it was the same thing. You, in Doctor No, you go to Jamaica, and the whole film, apart from the early scenes in in London, are set in Jamaica. So you you really have a feeling that you've been transported to that place. And it's it's the same same in Thunderball for, for the Bahamas and uh, so on. So I, and that that's one thing that I think. Uh, the more recent films, they, they they jump too much from from place to place, and so you never get uh, the feeling of actually going anywhere or, or being in another place. But for, for me, that's always been one of the essential uh, elements. I'd like to add on to this list with the three Gs, and I hate myself for saying the first one. I'm only going to say it once. Uh, girls, gadgets, and guns. And so in terms of the first G, just because I wanted all three to, to rhyme, uh, the women who populate the world of James Bond have always been an appealing aspect of the franchise. Um, this idea that Bond is surrounded by beautiful women, works in concert with them, battles against them. I think having women on screen is a really important and appealing aspect in the world of James Bond. And I would advocate for having characters who are well-rounded, multifaceted, the characters that we tend to sink our teeth into and find the most endearing are the ones that are the best developed. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't look at the role that women played in the popularity of Bond. And then you have gadgets. Technology matters in the world of James Bond and so many other shows and films have emulated this particular element of the James Bond franchise from watches to cars, um, to everything in between, Bond utilizes this technology with great expertise in order to get him out of perilous situations. And so I've always loved and enjoyed the inventor Q coming in, describing all the technology and then seeing the scenarios where that technology play out. And then lastly, guns. James Bond has a license to kill. He is able to go out on missions. He can kill without penalty. Uh, he can't abuse it. It's not as if he just takes a machine gun and shoots everybody <laughs> in his path. He doesn't do that. He uses it responsibly. But he is on missions that are so important to the geopolitical security of the UK that he has to use violent force in order to make sure that the people and the resources and the politics are set in order. There's some problems with that as well. But it is a very appealing element having a spy who can kill. So I say like the three G's even though the first one I wish was a W, definitely play a role in shaping the world of Bond and, and, and its appeal. I guess it was the gadget that first kind of drew a 10 or 11-year-old Paul to, to James Bond. <laughs> yeah. You know, as you've gotten older, perhaps that attraction has waned and you also start to think about the problematic elements of the fact that he does have a license to kill. Right. But, but of course, it's, you know, it's, it's what, made James Bond, James Bond in a sense, because you've got this, um, where, where, where you see a whole lot of other action stars just doing it because they have to, you know, because they're stuck in this, mm-hmm. this, in this vicious cycle, you know, Bruce Willis at the top of the tower or what have you. The premise of James Bond is that he's going to go, go out and do something that's pretty horrible work that's, you know, got to be done for the sake of the country, but you know, maybe that's also one of the things is that David and Bill were both touching on it. Is he sort of a reluctant hero? Mm. I, th- I think you, you've touched on something briefly there that's going down the same route as my line of thinking is um, is that why why does a James Bond film work when so many others have tried to imitate or adapt that format and it's not? And I get the question that's going through my mind in, does James Bond work because of 
the stories it tells, or is it also stories and the production side of the film as well? So each James Bond film, there's a certain sort of quality, there's a certain expense, there's a certain way that they're shot, soundtrack. Is is James Bond just a hero that we relate to through stories, or is it actually a, a whole sort of filmmaking process that we don't always necessarily pick apart? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, I think for me, part, part of it at least is the character. And I think probably one of the elements about Bond, which is, is attractive to people, is that basically you can put him in any situation and he can deal with it somehow. And, uh, you know, in, in some of the films, it's because he's got the right gadgets in, uh, in the books and in the, the type of Bond that I, I prefer it because it, it's his own, it, 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 he's resourceful enough to, to uh, work out what to do. As to the, the stories, I, I, I'm not really sure because sometimes, sometimes they can be rather ridiculous. What what does everyone else think about that? I think it's difficult to separate a story and how it's told. Like, I think both of them factor in together. You can have a great story and it could be told in a crummy way. And you can have a not so great story, but it can be told with visual language that is incredibly compelling. And so I think what the Bond franchise did in a formulaic sense was combine or marry the two, taking a lot of the stories that had captured the literary imagination coming from the work of Ian Fleming coming at a time in post-war UK with the rise of the Cold War when there were insecurities, taking those types of stories and bringing them to life in the 60s and the 70s, but also doing so in a stylistic manner um, that was appealing. And that was, in a sense, I would say pushing the rise of blockbuster action filmmaking. These are the first action films that, that we get, and they were kind of original at, at, during their time, right? And so I think that is part of it, is, is the timeliness of having stories, telling them in a particular way, and then doing so um, at, the, at a particular moment and leading the pack. And I think Sean is right when he even mentions music. I mean, the world of Bond is defined by music, not just the title tracks, but the musical score, it's, it's the use of, of brass instruments and the use of certain melodies and the use of punctuated notes and electric guitar. The world of Bond, it's visual, but it's also very much oral or sonic. And I think it's a combination and a blending together of elements. At least that's how I see it, Sean. I, I, I definitely agree with that. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head at the moment of sort of flipping the flipping the question over to sort of answer why the James Bond franchise works we've got a perfect example of why imitation James Bond kind of doesn't work and why does say something like never say never again where you're taking the same character you're taking the same very basic elements what what's missing why does that not feel the same as the rest of the franchise what do you guys think it was done outside of eon and so a lot of the core at least this is my reading a lot of the core personnel when we look at establishing for the first, say, three decades before we hit the Brosden era, you really did have a core creative team, visually, narrative and script wise, who worked on so many of these films that there was a consistency of style because it was a consistency of personnel. And so when you tried to make the films after that or without a lot of those uh, elements or, or influences, it is going to 
change, right? There's a small number of directors, a small number of cinematographers, screenwriters, and John Barry makes most of the soundtracks, right? Like those are the core elements because it's the core people who I think they found the magic working together and, and, and sort of tweaking their formula. But at least that's just sort of my reading of, of at least the first three decades of establishing. Right? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good point, actually. It, it's, it's perhaps something that you can't put your finger on. It, it's just the, the kind of creative juices behind the scenes and, and a kind of, I, I mean, very, very early on in this podcast, we talked about s- sausage making and uh, Bond <laughs> films as, 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 a, as a sausage factory. And uh, the... And to a certain extent that they are that, but it, it, it's a kind of very well-oiled machine. And so everyone knows how the, the, the other parts of the machine work. And so it, they were able to, 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 to put these things out and get the right feeling. And, the, the, I, and, and Never Say Never Again, bringing Never Say Never Again up is, is, is absolutely it. Because it, it is a Bond film. It's got Sean Connery, but it does not work. There's definitely something lacking there. So, and trying to trying to put your finger on it is 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 very very difficult. So it, it it's something that is hidden. Yeah. I guess yeah. For the first fifteen years of the franchise, you can think of the people who made it as professional in the sort of lowercase p sense, where they just they had a job to do, they got on and did it. And perhaps as we've sort of pushed the twenty first century, and we sort of realised that we've been doing the same thing or making the same kind of film for 20 years, there was a need or a desire to try and do something different, which is when it sort of moved from the sort of working man's profession to, to a bit more of an artistic one. Things take longer and you experiment and you try new things and they don't always land. And I feel like that's sort of the story perhaps of the Craig era <laughs> is that, yeah, yeah, you know, we felt the need to move in a different direction and maybe that was that intu- intuition was right, but, Moving away from what we know so well and what we've done for so long creates a, I guess, a, you know, a risk. <laughs> and it's really up to your personal taste as to whether that risk paid off or that risk or the, or the work landed. Yeah. Do you know, with, with that, it, it was, it was a, a huge risk, uh, what they did with, with Casino Royale. And uh, I, I think that Eon have to be commended on that because they, they didn't have to take that risk. Uh, it could have gone very wrong for them. I, 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 th- I think where things went wrong are when they wanted to try and incorporate elements of the of the older films again. And you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't like Skyfall. I, I think uh, I think Quantum Solace. Uh, with it, the, the big problem there was that they didn't have enough time to. Uh, they had a writer strike. They didn't have enough time, and so they didn't. It, it didn't fall into place. If they'd had, say, six months longer or a year longer than than that, probably probably would have been a much better film. So I think David raises a really great point about what's going on in the Daniel Craig era and how Quantum of Solace it ran out of time in terms of its production. And then moving forward, they've spent a lot of time looking back and trying to remake the older films instead of looking forward. And I'm all about giving Money, Penny an origin story and even finishing Daniel Craig's origin story. But this idea of constantly remaking the past as if those are the elements that make a Bond film, I think misses the mark. And these films do lack the same tone, the same appeal, even the same combination of elements. I remember watching... The Kingsman and 
one of the Mission Impossible films and thinking to myself, this feels more like James Bond and the James Bond aesthetic than the actual James Bond films. And and yeah, I think that it, it matters how things are combined and it matters how these films are being conceptualized. And, and it's almost like grasping for straws to try to figure it out on the other side of things. How do we marry, you know, the Casino Royale aesthetic and combine it with the things that came before? I don't think we've seen an output that's done it successfully, at least in my opinion. But I'm looking forward to see where No Time to Die falls because just based on um, the very few trailers that I have seen, I think it might actually be the most Bond-esque of the Daniel Craig era. And and again, don't quote me on that. I haven't seen the film. Um, But I'm looking forward to that film because to me, stylistically, the, 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 the brightness of it, some of the comments, some of the technology, I'm just like, okay, maybe this is, we're going back to Bond, right? It, it may have taken us five films, but maybe we'll end, you know, No Time to Die on that, that type of note and propel the, the future of the franchise into a different direction. But, but yeah, I think it, it matters the combination of elements, how they're utilized and not simply just being the sum of its parts. Well, one thing that's kind of intriguing about No Time to Die is that plane or glider or whatever it is, and you only see it in those trailers. But I mean, that's something you haven't had in a Daniel mm-hmm. Craig film. It's it's like familiar territory in terms of a Connery film, in terms of a Roger Moore film, a Pierce Brosnan film, certainly. Not at all with Daniel Craig. And just seeing that particularly the little banter like do you know how to fly one of the, have you ever wa- flown one of these things no and so yeah i mean that's not something you, you've seen in a craig film until now but i i completely agree with you guys and something that when when they so when they go through the process of announcing a new james bond film and we get the first press conference and we get sort of a release or an interview with the director something that always bothers me and has bothered me for the past few years that every time they go, well, I was a big James Bond fan when, the, when I was a kid, so Uh-oh. I want to make this, and I want to add all these nostalgic elements. It kind of makes you go, ah, no, 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 because we're at a point now where the franchise is on the cusp of becoming the point of diminishing returns, where we're just seeing the DB5 over and over again. We're seeing what we've already seen. And for me, the magic of the franchise up until Casino Royale is that even though they don't necessarily always take the right step, there are some really quite brave artistic decisions and some really original ideas. And there's a quote, and I forget who said it, so if whoever's listening was the person who said it, I'm really sorry. But someone once said that you should never strive to achieve what your idols achieve. You should strive to understand what they want to achieve and then strive for that. Hmm. Well, Sean, just picking up on what you said. So when we had the Roger Moore films, his spy car wasn't the DB5. It was the Lotus. And it was only in two films at that and mostly in The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, in terms of, you know, all the gadgets and such. It was like it it kind of took that trope, but The Spy Who Loved Me kind of made it its own by, you know, again, going with a different type of car and new gadgets and all that. And then uh, and then even with Timothy Dalton, when that when the living daylights was originally scripted there was no mega spy car they they added that later and while that was an aston martin it wasn't the db5 it was a you know a then new aston martin so i i think those are examples where they kind of take the basic style and tropes but then do it differently and kind of try mm-hmm. to make it 
its own thing. The essence, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to say something about this as well, because the, the, the Aston Martin is way overdone, particularly the DB5. And I, I, I don't care what car Bond drives. Uh, and in a way, I wish that it wasn't uh, Aston Martin because it's so overdone. In the books, he drives two or three Bentleys in, in the books, Aston once, but then he's in he's in Ford Thunderbird hired cars and, you know, anything, Land Rovers and, and whatever. So Bond can drive any car. He can drive any car. Um, but it, that's not the only thing that's overdone. It's now, it's it's the vodka martinis every single film now in in some shape or form where in the books he was actually more of a whiskey drinker okay uh they 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 take all these cliches and they have to stuff them into every single film and i wish they'd tone that down Back to the original question of what makes James what makes James Bond so so magical. That 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 formula that we're talking about is sort of becoming its own undoing in a way, in that they're just refining yes. the same thing over Absolutely. and over again. And the magic of the James Bond films for me is essentially you have every film is the same film. When you look at it from a basic story structure way and look at the elements that the soundtrack's always a similar vibe, the cinematography's always a cinema vibe, the actors are always quite always quite similar from film to film you've essentially got the same film but you've got 24 ways of doing it and that's what's brilliant about it right and and there was a quote uh in fact it was roger moore who said it it's like the the secret is like you tell the same story except you tell it differently and and also real quick on the cars i mean the ironic thing about how dependent the franchise has become on Aston Martin, goes back to the novel Goldfinger. And in the novel, Bond is picking between two cars in the motor pool. One's a Jaguar and one's an Aston Martin. It was a Mark III, I think. It wasn't a DB5. But he decided that the Aston Martin better fit with his cover, so he picked that over the Jaguar. But, like, I mean, if Fleming felt differently, (laughs) he might have driven a Jaguar to go see Goldfinger. So, yeah, but, but people... But now it's like... I, I think one of Fleming's friends recommended you go for Aston. I'm I'm sure that sounds that sounds entirely it sounds possible. very Fleming, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. So another characteristic of James Bond, as against perhaps many other fictional characters, is that he's so un. I don't know what the correct sort of single phrase is, but he's so much of Fleming. There's there is so much of Fleming in him. He's opinionated, and he's opinionated in a way that Fleming was. And the reason he has an Aston Martin and not a Jaguar is because Fleming thought that was best. There was a uh, an author of Private Eye stories named Ross McDonald, and he uh, he once said that all fiction reflects autobiography, even when it's not trying to be. And so, like any author, his or her tastes, opinions, whatever, are going to be reflected in the story. And to use a non-Bond example, do you know why Captain Kirk is a womanizer? Because his creator, Gene Roddenberry, was a womanizer. I mean, it's that simple. Now, now the skilled writer doesn't just put him or herself in whole. It, you know, spreads bits here and there among different characters. But yeah, I mean, that's that's an, you know that happens all the time in fiction. And that's one of the reasons why we should push for diversity in terms of our 
authors and screenwriters and directors because you typically are told in screenwriting classes to write what you know. And oftentimes you consult your own perspective when you craft and develop other characters. And then back to Bond and something that Sean said, you know, this idea of making 24 different sort of versions of the same film, I think it's even more complicated by the fact that you have different eras. And the way that we construct these eras in the world of Bond is based on, say, actors, right? You have these different eras or waves with different people coming in to the title role with different star personas, different acting abilities, different areas of emphasis, right? Can you play it in a serious way or could you give a witty quip? What are your levels in terms of a physical engagement in the space of action, right? And so I think that it's even more so that you have these different pockets and periods where there is some change, where there is some development and growth. And I think hindsight is twenty twenty, And oftentimes when we're past the original or, or, or the contemporaneous era, we can look back. Like I might look back and really appreciate the Daniel Craig era once I see who's the next person to play Bond. But I think the fascinating part for me is that it's different actors uh, in different eras. And there's been longevity when you literally substitute out the primary person playing the role. It'd be a very different conversation if we were talking about just the Sean Connery James Bond franchise over 50 years, right? That would be a very different conversation than looking at how we, every single time a new actor comes in, we have to recalibrate the series. And it, sometimes it takes a couple films to get into the mode that we want to get into. So I think it's, it's a very fascinating franchise. And just one more element here, I have my students do film journals every time they watch a Bond film. And so they have to pick out the villain and, 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 and the woman who plays the Bond girl and so on. But I also have basic things like, is Money Penny in it? Is there Q? What are the gadgets? And I ask them about things like alcohol, card games, cars. And I do that so that they can understand that their preconceived notions about what actually is in a Bond film is not always actually in a Bond film. Like he doesn't drink a martini in every single film. You know, he doesn't play, go into a casino in every single film. He doesn't smoke a cigarette in every single film. I mean, there is some continuity, but there's also differences. And I think that that mirrors some of the, say, the consumptive practices that Ian Fleming has in his novels, where Bond drinks a, a bunch of bourbon in the novels, right? He, there's a lot of variation in terms of his consumption and consumptive practices, but how we think about him in popular culture as an icon, we tend to oversimplify, we essentialize, right? We boil him down into like certain parameters and that's our idea. But the actual films show a lot more variation when we go and actually analyze what is, what is in them. So I think it's just, it's an interesting franchise of continuity and change and errors and actors and directors and influencers and who's the producer, who's holding the strings, who's making the decisions at different levels. There's just so much for us to talk about that we can have podcasts like James Bond and Friends, and we're not duplicating topics. <laughs> it's been a long time that we've been talking about this franchise, and we still have more things to say about it. Just talking about the booze briefly again, I don't want to see... The Goldfinger uh, novel? Yeah, <laughs> I, certainly, yeah. <laughs> Reflections in a double bourbon. I, I, I don't want to see a teetotal Bond but in the books, he drinks an immense variety of booze. And very often it's related to where he's traveling to. And, uh, you know, these days, because uh, we have a much more global economy, it, it means that, you know, Bond can travel to, you know, wherever in the world and he can always get, uh, he can always 
drink a Smirnoff vodka or uh, if he's in London, he can get uh, Raki or Saki or whatever, which perhaps in Ian Fleming's day you couldn't. But I, I'd like to see his drinking match um, his location a bit more, which in the next film uh, I think will happen because uh, we're going to get Bond drinking rum. Well, just real quick, of course, in the Goldfinger novel, he starts off, he's already had two double bourbons. He's nursing a third. Plane gets canceled. Then he runs into Mr. DuPont, who had been one of the Baccarat players in Casino Royale. They end up having a couple martinis, and then they have pink champagne for dinner. They, they have pints of pink champagne. It's... Yeah, I, it's like I get I get hung over just <laughs> reading it. Like I, you don't even have to you don't even have to drink it all just to be a little queasy. We'll come back to what Lisa said earlier about sort of we distill, well, the popular imagination distills down what it is to be a James Bond film. So we've got the, the guns, the girls, the martinis, gadgets. Well, and can I just say something real quick about the U.S.? I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Bond became more popular in the U.S. First, it was Playboy. They ran the Hildebrand Rarity short story in 1960. Then they uh, serialized a couple of the novels. And then, of course, you had President Kennedy, and what he what what happened was Life magazine did this like four thousand word article about how you know Kennedy's reading habits. He read like five or six newspapers. He read all these books. So then they asked um, Pierre Salinger, his press secretary, "Can you give us a list of his ten favorite books?" Now, supposedly, and this wasn't known at the time, so apparently Pierre Salinger kind of talked it over. It's like including with his boss, has said, boss, we ought to have like one popular novel on that list because most of them are like political biographies. So somehow, some way it became from Russia with love. And then that became, uh, that helped boost uh, Bond's popularity in the U.S. because Kennedy was a younger, handsome, dashing president, you know, because Dwight Eisenhower had been born in 1890, and Kennedy was born in 1917. He was the first U.S. president born in the 20th century, so it just it 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 just all kind of came together, and uh, and again, I'm speaking strictly about the U.S. in this regard, but that that definitely helped Bond's popularity in the U.S. I've got to say though, Bill, I'm not convinced that the Hildebrand uh, rarity uh, turned anybody into a Bond fan. No, but I just, it started a long running relationship between Playboy and uh, James Bond. Yeah, you know, because it was, it was the first of several things. Because by 1965, when the, I know, I know, but like some of those uh, Playboy things have this fantastic artwork. So, like in 65, when they serialized the Man with the Golden Gun novel, I've seen some of that artwork and there's like this one, I mean, it's like a painting of the scene where Bond had tried to kill M, you know, the brainwashed Bond tries to kill M and it's like this fantastic thing. Now, of course, by that time, they're making Bond look just like Sean Connery and M looks just like Bernard Lee and Money Penny looks just like Lois Maxwell. But I mean, the art is fantastic in those, uh, in those Playboy things. the opportunity to sort of start to talk about how you frame up your relationship with James Bond when somebody finds out, given all of this sort of popular culture and the essentialism that we talked about, and how those things are sort of 
they've come from a place of sincerity or they come from a place of sort of originality but now they sort of start to feel a bit cliche and when i talk about james bond with people that aren't you know you four <laughs> uh i i almost feel like i have to justify to people why it is that i like the franchise or why it is that i spent so much of my life at work writing and reading about it is that a common experience for you as well as a panel and and how do you go about sort of broaching that subject if you if you find out that somebody wants to know a bit more and wants to interrogate you a little bit more about your interest in uh, well i i remember when uh, i i don't think i'd really talked about bond with, with my wife very much until uh, i moved in with her you you lot know but listening might not know that um she was living in Barcelona, I was living in London, and so for three and a half years, EasyJet shuttled backwards and forwards until I moved to Barcelona back in 2001. But then it wasn't until I'd moved to Barcelona that I actually admitted to being a Bond fan. And she was like, what? It's like none of my male friends here are Bond fans. But shortly after that, uh, one of her friends, he, he was moving back from France, so he, he moved into our apartment for couple of months and uh, and she she said to him do you like james bond i've now found out that david is a massive bond fan and he said i don't just like james bond and he, he, this guy is he's completely unlike but he you you would never think that he was a bond fan let alone james bond but he said not only am i a bond fan but i would love to be james bond this kind of just floored my wife quite a few years later say so say five years later, and we had an Italian friend uh, staying. This was after Casino Royale, and she said she said to him, "Are you uh, are you a Bond fan as well?" Because she was getting uh, she was starting to get the impression that um, many men were just secretly. She just she just didn't know, and he, he said the same thing. Yeah, I'm a massive Bond fan, but. I want to be James Bond, so uh, I think after that she gave up asking. What did? How did the conversation, if it's not too personal a question, pan out when she found out? Did she ask you, like, what do you see in it, or did she just sort of take it aback? I, I think she said, no, I, I think she said, well, you know, it's uh, all this kind of rubbish films, and I don't think of <laughs> uh, is it all these rubbish films? I don't think I've ever seen one in in, in its entirety. In fact, the first Bond film uh, she saw at the cinema was Die Another Day. Uh, I, I, I do remember that because she, she thought that she thought I was just dragging her along and she was going to sleep through it. But then it was just this cacophony of, of noise throughout, basically, including the soundtrack. So, so, so that that reminds me is that I'm so I'm slowly introducing my partner to all the James Bond films. We're slowly making our way through. And she said something to me the other day that absolutely amazed me, but it made me very happy as well. I was really shocked by it. Um, and she struggles, the thing she struggles with that she doesn't get, she always goes, how do you remember them all? How can you tell them all apart? Because when we watched them, she was like, well, that's the same as the last one. Um, and she said to me the other day that her favourite one so far was Die Another Day. We, we, we both we both kind of have an appreciation for bad films anyway, but she was just like, it was fun and different. Um, I didn't really know how to respond, but I, it, it felt really interesting to me that the opinions we have as Bond fans and people who are well-versed in James Bond can actually be really different to opinions of people that aren't. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, it especially comes up, a friend of mine who would, I would not call a hardcore James Bond fan at all, 
she's she has said, oh, I'd love to see Idris Elba's James Bond. And she used to be on uh, the Spy Command page on Facebook. And then you had all the hardcore James Bond fans say, that's outrageous. And she finally left and said, I can't take this. I, I, I can't deal with it. So yeah, there's definitely a difference. Well, piggybacking off of that experience, uh, my experience might be a little bit different as a woman, as a feminist, as a professor in a women's and gender studies department. And as a a, a leading scholar in the field of James Bond, who has done a lot of research and and worked in concert with other scholars to develop like a gender studies branch of James Bond, I get asked a lot, how can you like the films? How can you study these films? I get asked to justify my work, whether it's my master's thesis defense, I was asked to justify who I am and the work that I do. I get it when I cross the border and I go to conferences and I get quizzed by border agents who are like, you know, who's your favorite Bond? And like asking me and peppering me with questions as if it's not possible. I get asked by regular people. I get asked by colleagues all the time, like, are you done with Bond? As if studying Bond is somehow gauche and and I'm not supposed to be doing it. And I think in all those cases, it has less to do with me and more to do with them and their preconceived notions really sort of placing those judgments on me and telling me who I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to like, and what I'm supposed to do with my life. And if anybody who knows me really well, you know that I actually don't care (laughs) what people say and what people think. And it actually has the opposite effect. You know, I have been at conferences where I am the only woman on the panel and I'm the only woman in the room. I've been quizzed on my knowledge of James Bond sitting there as an expert. And the only thing that it does is it makes me work harder in my field and publish more. Uh, So I'm not sure if it's supposed to be discouraging, but it has the opposite effect. And it's one of those things where if you tell me what you like, I can tell you what's wrong with it. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm good at my job. I'm good at what I do. But for some reason, James Bond is a lightning rod. It is this one franchise where people have accused it, and rightly so, of being sexist, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, genuistic, heterosexist, and so forth. And yet there are so many other films released in those exact years, in those exact moments, that that share a lot of these same sentiments. It doesn't mean those sentiments are right. It doesn't mean that they're okay. But they do still exist in those places, in those spaces. And so if I have the opportunity when people ask me these questions, I'm here to just open up the conversation and really talk about the franchise, what it reflected, how we negotiate our own meanings, how we can interrogate these texts. They're great texts to interrogate because we have nearly 60 years worth of content that we can examine and explore. And I find that once I start going down this path and talking through with people, they're like, wow, that's really cool. This is really important. It just requires labor and effort on my part to, in a sense, convince them or to instruct them on why it works. Um, and so it's, 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 it's been happening for the last 20 years. <laughs> like, as long as I've been studying and doing work in James Bond, I've been peppered with these types of questions. Some people out of genuine interest, like, this is really awesome. I want to talk to you. And others like, why the heck are you doing this woman? <laughs> so, and, and, and I have to say that there are other women out there with similar experiences. There's other women um, on social media. There are other women scholars uh, who are engaging in this. And just to sort of add on, I ended up um, a few years back writing a paper answering this question, like, how can you be a woman and feminist and not only like Bond, but study it? And I gave it to Claire Hines for her collection, Fan Phenomena, James Bond. 
And when I handed it to her and she read it, she basically wrote back and she says, exactly. That's exactly what I have been thinking and feeling every single time that I've been asked. So this isn't just like a Lisa thing. This is something that other women who are working in this field, um, whether it is professionally or whether through social media and talking about it through podcasts and social media posts, um, or even just regular women fans, right? A lot of us are feeling the same things. And that can also lead to us being disconnected from the fan community, right? Because we're not sure, like, are, are, do we belong? Is there a place for us? And I will say I have been welcomed with open arms within the James Bond fan community, super happy about it. But I also love talking with other women and forming those connections within the fan community and having a place and a space for us to just simply share our thoughts, feelings, experiences, and support each other. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different experience, but... I think that it has some common elements based on the franchise that we're all talking about. Well, just so you know, Lisa, in 2003, there was this conference at Indiana University in Bloomington, and a lot of academics presented papers. And one of the papers presented was why gay women love Sean Connery as James Bond. Uh, the title was a little more provocative than that, so I'm not going to repeat it. But, but. Uh, and there was another one about uh, gay symbolism in Diamonds Are Forever, such as the pipeline. And I'm, and I'm not making this up. These are all papers actually presented. I was there. I was watching all this. It's kind of like it, it's been out there for a long time. I mean, uh, James Chapman, who I know you know, I mean, he, he wrote a book that came, first came out in 2000, and it's been updated since. This has been out there for a long time. It's just, it, it's probably getting more attention than it used to, but uh, yeah, it's been out there for a while. Yeah, Lisa, you, you, you were talking um, just, just about a female Bond fan as well, because I'd, I'd say my, my sister's uh, basically in that camp. She, she yeah, I, probably, probably quite similar to you, because we used to watch the Bond films as, as a family. Um, she she grew up with them with with the rest of us, and so she she she's always been you know, a, a massive Bond fan. Not to the same extent as me. She doesn't go and talk about it on social media or write blog posts or anything uh, like that. But no, I, I think there are a lot of female Bond fans. I, it, sometimes it surprises me at how little voice they get. And I will say this, you know, when at a point in time when I did get my hair done, you know, people ask what you do and you know, as you're paying and talking with, you know, my hairstylist and the receptionist and, you know, another uh, woman was there paying. And I said, oh, you know, I study James Bond and all the women were like, I love Bond films. Like, it, it, <laughs> I'm like, we do exist. It's just that we might not be on social media. And I think it's important to note that what we see on social media, the loudest voices tend to predominate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the consensus right? That there are other people who simply just don't engage in these spheres, but it doesn't make their fandom any less value, valuable. And it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It's just that they might not pop up on social media. Yeah. In fact, my, my, my wife has become a bit of a Bond fan since Daniel Craig took over. Um, can I say something as the old person of the group uh, about how Bond got popular? I just want to preface this by saying, I know there are certain people who go, I've been a Bond fan since Goldfinger. I saw Goldfinger in the theater. It's like, rah, 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 rah. I, I don't want to be that guy. I, you know, I, I only mentioned just what it was like at the time. I mean, I came in at, during Thunderball. And at that time, James Bond was, James Bond was not just cool by himself. James Bond 
particularly the Sean Connery James Bond, the whole spy craze of the 60s was on his shoulders. He was the tide that lifted all boats. And so if you like spy stuff in general, the 60s was a magical time. And, and Bond, I would argue, helped create a market for John Le Carré. He was going to do his novels anyway, but Bond helped create a market for an anti-Bond, if you will. And so I think Bond helped uh, Le Carré, David Cornwell, his real name, uh, find an audience. And now a lot of Le Carré fans then kind of pick at Bond, oh, he's, you know, but it doesn't matter. It's just, I, I think he created a big market for everybody, at least at that time. So we're all coming at this sort of like from different backgrounds and going back to our starter kit. The question I want to know from all you guys is, if you're introducing someone to James Bond for the first time, where do you go? Which which film do you pick? David, make oh. them read a book. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which book? You know what? Actually, actually, I was going to say that. I was going to say read Casino Royale just because that was the thing that started it all. And I say that mostly because I did that recently. Um, and, and, you know, I hadn't read it in years. I mean, I first read it, like, I hate to say this, almost 50 years ago. But it's always interesting to see, you know, to go to the very beginning and see how things evolve, not only in terms of literary bond, but then the film bond, et cetera. But, like, that's where it all began. So I think at some point, it doesn't have to be the very first thing you do, but it's probably something you should probably check out at some point along the line. It's also virtuously short. <laughs> yeah, I, in fact, I, I, I can go shorter than that because people have asked me what bond, or where to start with, with literary bond. And if they don't want to read a whole book, I say read The Living Daylight. It, 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 it's got just about everything that you want bond in, I don't know how many pages. Nice, concise, short story. He also considers things to do to pass the time that he never did in the movies. Like at one point he considers like basically going to a bordello, but you know, he did, he passes on the idea, but he does consider it. And that's the stuff you don't see in the movies. I, 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 I agree. The living daylights has a really good shout there. And I, I, I kind of think the opposite to you, Bill, in a way that I, I don't, I wouldn't start with Casino Royale. One of my best friends has read Casino Royale and just Casino Royale, and he came out saying, "Well, that was really downbeat and really sadist." And he was like, "I don't want to read more of this." My personal recommendation would be either Moonraker or Thunderball, because you've got books that have sort of they're they're kind of standalone and they have sort of those more exciting elements in them. For me personally, mm. uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of Thunderball, both the book and the film. And but because you've actually said that, probably a good start is is Thunderball either the book or the film if you're going to switch between them because they are very very close and Sean I actually agree with you it's like like I said Casino Royale is not I said not necessarily it's like yeah you might not want to you know do it right off the bat like but once you kind of got your bearings maybe then you go back and check out how it all began you know it's sort of like reading the first issue of a comic book of a long-running character it's like yeah, you know, you go back and see how beginning. Oh, it's not so impressive as you might think, but you you can see though where the um, 
just how it began and just the how the tropes began. It's it's something you should consume at some point, but not necessarily the very Absolutely. First thing. It's fascinating and I, I also think it's not helped by the fact that it's immediately then followed by Live and Let Die. And both of them, as books, as a read, require a lot of work from the reader and they're really quite heavy. Um, and you, you finish both of them and you're like, Phew. so that's why I would say Moonraker is then by that point, you've got a much easier jumping on point. Fleming's kind of found his style and his groove a little bit more with it for me. Any book that has Galabrand in it is a very good selection because <laughs> <laughs> I like her as a character. But I think this raises a really good point about starting points. You know, if if Netflix binging has taught me anything over the past year, it's that some series start out slow and then they kind of get catch their steam maybe at in the middle or the end of a season or maybe in season two. And so the question is, do you start something at the beginning and do it chronologically? Like when I teach James Bond, my students start with Dr. No and a lot of them are like, what am I watching? Uh, so do you start at the beginning and, and build or do you pick texts that are, are in a sense gateways? I don't want to say gateway drugs, but like sort of gateway steps into the franchise. And so I asked my dad this this morning and said, hey, dad, like if you were to recommend to somebody where they should start with Bond, where would you start? He initially said Goldfinger because it's sort of the first one that felt like a Bond film. But then we started talking about younger audiences and if Goldfinger would be a film that would attract them. And so we started to sort of pull our, pull it out a little bit more. Um, and, and I think we came up with Goldeneye. We came up with Moonraker, the movie, um, or The Spy Who Loved Me. But I wanted to actually promote, surprising it is, um, a, a dark horse as an option. <laughs> it's a real dark horse. Um, and that's The Living Daylights. Ooh. Because the more that I think about The Living Daylights, the more that I think that it has flavors and elements from every other Bond era. It has sort of the spy ethics from, you know, the Connery era. It's got the love story from the Lazenby era. Uh, they try to interject some witty one-liners that are characteristic of the Moore era. Maybe they fall flat, but at least they're there. Um, it has more of sort of like the action style machine gun action that you kind of get in the Brosnan era. And then you have an actor who is a lot more gritty, moody, and he is body-based in the fact that Timothy Dalton tried to do a lot of the stunts, much like Daniel Craig. And then you put that in a movie that also has like the gadgetry and it's got snow sequences and it's got a cello sequence and it's got a great love interest and it has geopolitics, you know, and you put all these things together and you sort of come up, at least in my opinion, with a movie that's sort of like an ice cream cone with like all the flavors. And then you sort of like blend it together and it kind of gives you brown. I guess that's not the best metaphor I'm trying to go for. But, but you sort of get a taste of, of like the entire Bond franchise through it. So is it like the conventional choice? Probably not. But I think it would be one that would like excite people and get them interested. Like I kind of want to learn a little bit more about Bond. So that's how we, my dad and I, at least this morning for an hour, <laughs> were hashing out this conversation <laughs> of like, what that? should we pick? <laughs> I know we should have just recorded it, but oh. it's an interesting conversation to have. We should get your dad on the podcast. <laughs> He's the We've best. Got to save a Timothy Dalton though, because there's only two of them, so that's why. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sparingly. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, my first exposure to Bond actually wasn't a movie. It was a TV special. And I've, I've talked about this before. It was called The Incredible World of James Bond. 
Now, looking back as an adult many years later, it's you know, clearly it was an infomercial. But as a seven-year-old, it was like a, and very impressionable. It sounded like it was incredibly powerful. And, you know, they had, you know, because they had clips from the first three movies, but they weren't like little clips. They were extended clips. And, and then they showed you behind-the-scenes filming of Thunderball, which was going to be out a month later. And um, originally, Connery was supposed to narrate it, but then he, you know, he, he said, no, nah, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. So they hired this char- character actor who had this fantastic voice, and he gave it more gravitas <laughs> than it probably deserved. And it's like, I watch it as an adult now. It's like, yeah, it's an infomercial, but it's very impressive. And like one of the last sequences, you know, you you see inside Goldeneye and it's like the golden typewriter at the desk. And you hear these audio clips from the first three movies. And it's like, whoa, this, this is like really incredible. And so that's what hooked me on James Bond. So it's like, I didn't see Thunderball for a few months after that. I was thinking about this question, or certainly from the perspective of the films, is like, what can you do? And I think maybe Lisa has alighted on the actual answer, and so forgive me, <laughs> which is to find one film that kind of embodies the whole franchise. But what can you do to give people a taste of the different eras and the different spaces? So I scribbled down Casino Royale from Rush With Love, Goldeneye, and Moonraker as my little like care package for an incoming Bond fan. I think that probably gives people a sense of the wide gamut of what James Bond means. And I was potentially, I'd scribbled Thunderball above from Russia with Love because those are probably maybe a little bit interchangeable, but I like the fact that from Russia with Love has such an odd pacing to it is still relatively well accepted amongst the Bond community. In, in this care package, do you throw in a, a lifetime subscription to MI6 Confidential as well? <laughs> no, they've got to pay for that, man. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to go back to what you briefly mentioned, uh, Lisa, um, and I feel like I'm probably going to regret saying this on the podcast. What you were saying about Goldfinger in particular is that there's, I think there's a point of view, particularly in the Bond fandom, that Goldfinger is a bit of a holy grail and it's a film that a generation that's not my own goes back to quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I personally do struggle with it and I've shown it to my partner and she she thought the same and my old roommate when we did them all in order a few years ago he thought exactly the same is that I don't know I don't know if it's a generational thing but it, it doesn't quite work as a Bond film it's it's a fair enough film in its own right and I kind of apply the same thing to Skyfall in that they're, they're good films in their own right but as a Bond film they seem to take Bond out of his natural habitat and that they just don't fit and i don't know how else to describe that and people are probably going to come after me for saying that and but i'm i'm curious to know if if there is anyone else out there in our generation that feels that same thing but um, it also feels like put off from saying that because it is held with such high regard in fact we could bleep that but um, <laughs> sean sean i just want to let you know my mother god rest her soul she didn't like goldfinger she her favorite bond movie was the spy oh. who loved me it's amazing. Yeah. So, so it's not purely a generational thing. It may be partly, but it's like not every, you know, it's like you're onto something. It's not, I mean, Goldfinger, I think, was more timing. I think, you know, things were just building up and it happened to be the Bond movie that came out just when everything was ready to burst out there. I mean, the whole spy craze was building up. Maybe it's that thing where we talked about where we've essentialized it too far now. 
where Goldfinger mm-hmm. represents all of the elements thrown together in a way so spectacular that you can't create it. But now that we've seen, as Sean says, 24 of the same film, we go back to the sort of the the thing that originated that and go, oh, that's a bit derivative, isn't it? And certainly that, that may be true, Paul. But the, one of the things about Goldfinger for, for me now is because I've seen it so many times and oh, oh, we've talked about this before. I don't know how many times I can actually watch it again. But, you know, it, it, it has these classic elements in it, but uh, I, can't, I can't judge it as a film anymore. It, I, 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 just, I just see the classic elements. You see, for me, it has it has some of those elements. It doesn't have all of them, and more of the Bond elements that I would think in my mind come in films like You Only Live Twice or or The Spy Who oh, Loved Me. What, um, what 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 are those elements? Uh, I guess it's sort of so where you come back to guns, gadgets, vehicles, the sort of the smooth talking, the the lifestyle, the luxury locations like Goldfinger's location, Kentucky. <laughs> it's it's not that beautiful to look at, and it's not shot in a way that is particularly beautiful either. Yeah. Um, and and ninety percent of it is not in Kentucky, even. <laughs> and and also, and um, Lisa, you'll probably want to say something about this as well. Is its treatment of female characters? Yes, we think about girls being in James Bond, but the way they're portrayed in Goldfinger, for me, I, I don't like it, and it it doesn't match up with the some of the other films that do it much better, and but then the display it. Sorry, not displays a bad word, but show and present those female characters in a much better and much stronger light. And that, so in a sense, romanticize sexual violence. I mean, we can say it; it's fine. And and here's the thing, Sean: it's okay if your view or your opinion clashes or or is is inconsistent, say, with with other fans of the franchise. But I think the the thing that everybody has to always keep in mind is that we can have different opinions. We can qualify those opinions, but we can do so in a way that's respectful, right? And so like, I think our podcast is showing that we don't all have to agree um, and we can sort of show all the different layers and the reasons why. I think for me, what turns me off is when people get really judgmental and get very vocal and get very angry (laughs) when opinions are being shared. Uh, But I think for the most part, a lot of Bond fans would be very sort of like open to being like, okay, because I think, this, 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 the, the standing of Goldfinger. And, and we were talking about it when uh, we looked at um, Mark O'Connell's rankings, right? Of, of top five Bond films. And like, Gold, I'm not sure, Gold, I, I, I can't remember. But for some reason, I don't think that Goldfinger was number one. I don't think Goldfinger was number two. And I think that the standing of these films is constantly in flux, that there's different time periods of movements where we can look back and appreciate different things. So from Russia with Love is getting a renaissance, right? Honor Majesty's Secret Service is getting a renaissance. Um, And it's okay to look back with different lenses and say, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with what I see, or it just doesn't jive with my idea. Or I think there are better films um, of the Sean Connery era. Like I actually do like um, You Only Live Twice. And I don't think it gets enough love from the set design, um, the location shooting, the little Toyota car, the underground layer, um, the friendship that he has. I mean, there's problematic elements in there as well. Um, but it is a film that I don't think gets enough attention. And there might come a day and there might come a time when that film is is more on the rise. So I, 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 I do like unpopular opinions. As long as they're grounded and, and there's an explanation that's given, I think that it's amazing. 
guess that summarizes in a way that magic that we're talking about is that you can you can form those opinions in bond and you there is that <laughs> variety there so when you're watching it for the first time i i i i love when i'm showing bond films to people is that they are forming their own opinions and that they're liking different things for me i don't want to influence them two two things in terms of goldfinger in terms of film actually shot in kentucky there's less than five minutes in the final film it's like you know where the soldiers are falling down that's the real fort knox uh but like fort knox is like one of the most uninteresting parts of kentucky to film in um it's just it's just not very photogenic um you know because the the stud farm is in england and all that stuff and then like with you only live twice there is a contingent among the old farts like me um there are a lot of them who they've never gotten over about how they flipped the order between majesties and you only live twice and how they threw out the main plot of the novel of you only live twice and i mean i i have some bond bond fans who will honestly say they say this with all sincerity it's the worst mistake the franchise ever made and i'm thinking drofeld uh parachute thing in die another day uh I think there are like worse mistakes. I mean, I, I said this on the watch along. I mean, I made my peace with You Only Live Twice. It's a, it's a very entertaining film. Um, you know, maybe they should have called it something else. But at the time, you know, it was like the, the no, it's the movie that came out the least amount of time from the novel. So there was no way they wouldn't call it You Only Live Twice. And it's like, I'm over it. I've been over it for a long time, but some people still are. I think we've talked about how we'd like to see a faithful adaptation of Moonraker one day. Would a faithful adaptation of You, you Only Live Twice go down equally well and amongst the fans? Or is sort of time I'd, passed on I, that one? It's quite an odd I book. think I think context makes that particularly hard of mm-hmm. removing that, that story away from the context of the previous books before it. Um, Oh, the one thing I do love about You Only Live Twice, the film, is that you can go into it and you've got, and you can with most James Bond films, to be fair, it's that you've got a story from start to finish. You can go in not knowing anything about yeah. James Bond and you get everything in the space of two hours. It should be noted there are rumours that uh, a bit of You Only Live Twice, the novel, is in No Time to Die. I was just thinking we could get someone like David Fincher to direct it. <laughs> <laughs> But then it and the, and you don't need the context. You could just come in. It could be weird for an hour and a half, two hours, and you could leave. It's it's. Yeah. The, it, I think the 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 thing with the only device as a novel is that there's so much of Fleming in there in his sort of his struggles in the way it's written, and I don't know how that'll translate to screen. His mood post heart attack in '62 like plays a critical role in in the writing of that novel, and. And remember, there's the one chapter that's nothing but like lists of poisonous plants and whatnot. I mean, it would be a very difficult book to adapt. Now, on the other hand, Stanley Kubrick once said something like, if a human mind can conceive it, it can be filmed. But boy, not as a conventional tentpole movie. You'd have to, you'd have to do like Casino Royale, the 2006 film, where you'd have to essentially concoct a second yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, if, if, you, if you did it as is, it, it would be for TV, I think. Yes. For Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a streaming show. Yeah, absolutely.
round us out what's well, been a, a meandering and classic episode of James Bond with friends. <laughs> 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 it's got a date as well as Goldfinger. Is there any other thing, object, piece of media that you would like to throw in the care package? You know, I said I was going to put in a, a, a handful of films that I felt sort of represented some of the different tones across the series. Oh, you, you should put in my book. Oh, the the drinks of James Bond. Right, Dave, <laughs> yeah, David's yes. book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, addition, and and Lisa's. Right. Which one? In addition, in addition to those books, I toss in a soundtrack. Uh, or absolutely. Two. Maybe you only live twice, mm. or a gold If we were to put soundtracks in, I would pick a Barry and then maybe two other different composers, just to show the variety. I, I'd put um, on a Majesty's Secret Service. I'd put Quantum of Solace uh, mm. as well, which is it is such a good soundtrack. It's uh, in, insanely good. I would also toss in uh, Live and Let Die, because I think George Martin's soundtrack is probably the least appreciated of the non-Barry soundtracks. It kind of evokes Barry, but it doesn't copy Barry. I mean, Martin was very instrumental. Oh, sorry, didn't end that fun. Um, in helping to produce the... <laughs> that went over my head until you said it. <laughs> in terms of producing the song. <laughs> Unlike anyone on this I mean, podcast. I mean, George Martin helped produced the song and and more importantly sold it to harry saltzman because harry saltzman wanted to get some woman singer to do it and finally george martin in a you know typical british way well if you don't take paul mccartney you don't get the song um but he you know so while he did not write the song he was very you know he knew the song and he weaves it into the soundtrack exceptionally well as as well as barry does in the best of his soundtracks and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, my appreciation for the uh, Live and Let Die soundtrack has, has grown over the years. Um, it, it's not better than Barry, but it's really good. It's, it's that wonderful thing about being a time capsule as well as it so perfectly evokes the period. Yeah. Can I talk about my care package? I have it written down. So in terms of written literature, I think that you need to purchase The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond a subscription to MI6 Confidential Magazine and pick up one of my books. I recommend the cheapest of the two is For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about gender. In terms of digital materials, maybe subscribe to blogs like The Spy Command or watch uh, the YouTube videos put forward by Calvin Dyson. And then if you're interested in purchasing some art associated with the world of Bond, Sean Longmore has um, some really great posters uh, that you can see uh, on online. So I think that this is a podcast that is full of care packages <laughs> that you can utilize. And that was just a whole section of self-promotion. And subscribe to this podcast. I don't know who any of those people are. <laughs> who are these people? What are these texts? I, I've never heard of them either. <laughs> but really, there's a lot of really great stuff. If you are a fan and you have different areas i mean there's great stuff out there about the style of james bond if you want to emulate it if you want to pay for it there are books out there that are written but there's also great instagram accounts there are and everybody's got a podcast but different podcasts based on different elements there's a lot of bond scholarship if you're interested in knowing more about that i'm not going to go over it all right now but you're welcome to send me a message and i can tell you you know what are some fundamental texts that you might want to check out and there's a lot of really great stuff that's been written um, by authors and critics and people who have 
um, uh, uh, experience with the production side. I think Catching Bullets by Mark O'Connell is a really good one. Um, and you have, um, you know, all the recent books that have come out um, by Mark Edlitz, for instance. And so like, th there's just a lot of really good stuff out there, just depending on your interest level, uh, your financial situation, if you can, if you want to purchase texts or not, but there's a lot of stuff available on the internet to sink your teeth into. And also for a literary um, franchise is coming up on its 70th anniversary in a couple of years and a film franchise that's coming up on its 60th, all that's continues to grow and that's great. Can I also throw in another a, a couple of other other media kind of things? Um, yeah, something I had noted down was if you're interested particularly in the behind the scenes stories of James Bond was is the fantastic documentary they did for the 50th anniversary called Everything or Nothing, mm -hmm. which is it's oh, yes. it's, it's really it's yes. it's it's brief, um, but it's it's really it's in depth at the same time. It's really good, and even just as as, as someone who you could watch it as a non-James Bond fan, I think, and still be entertained and still get something out of it. As part of the care package, somebody I want to give a shout-out to is Edward Bidolf, who, who he's Bond memes on, on Twitter, and he does... Um, I, can't, I don't remember the name of the website. It's uh, Bond Food or... Licensed to Cook. Yeah, the, the book is Licensed to Cook. Uh, the, the, the website is... JamesBondFood.com. He, he just writes about, uh, well, Bond's food... Uh, currently in from the books because uh, if you if you're just used to the films then you, you won't know that the books have got uh, a lot of fantastic writing about food and uh, his book is definitely worthwhile if you like to cook and so is his blog. Well, and and there's another book that's coming out in early April 2021 called the James Bond Lexicon by Ellen J. Porter and Julian Porter and Psyche. I once I remember. Because he put out something on social media, yeah, you know, they got the books back and they're coming out in early April. And it's like, yeah, I, I talked to Alan about this and I found my post about it was in 2015. Like, oh my goodness, he's, he's had to endure some setbacks, but that book is finally coming out. So I'll put in a plug, which I have nothing to do with. That's just me being me. Um, I would personally also chuck in some non-bond non stuff. And I know that sounds crazy, but I think to provide context of the time. So watch some episodes of the classic Avengers, for example, or um, even like the Bourne Identity, uh, the Mission Impossible films. You're going to see connections there that translate over and sort of in a way recontextualize what you're seeing in Bond films to understand the landscape of cinema and popular culture at the time and spy popular culture. Um, and then also perhaps the Harry Palmer films as well, produced by um, mm -hmm, Harry Saltzman. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and and also the Bond films. Uh, in addition to actors such as Honor Blackman, Diana Rigg, Patrick McNee, they also pick technical people. Uh, Alan Hume, a director of photography on three Bond films in the eighties, he had been a director of photography on the Avengers. John Glenn had been editor on some episodes of Danger Man, shown in the U.S. as Secret Agent. Um, yeah, so the, the, the Bond films themselves have connections to these uh, spy-crazed TV shows. Um, and I think there's also, there's also one element of James Bond that we've not mentioned so far that's really quite a big one that we've overlooked, and that's um, video games. Yes. Um, Bond has 
actually Bond actually has a huge presence in the video game community without being James Bond, if that makes sense, because GoldenEye 64 was such a massive thing. There's a lot of fans of that game that aren't necessarily James Bond fans. Um, but there are some brilliant James Bond stories that have happened over the games. Uh, and they certainly shaped me when I was younger, in particular um, Nightfire, Agent Under Fire, Everything or Nothing. Um, and it's a really good way to experience sort of the James Bond story, but in another medium. I don't know what you think about that. I'm, I've never really been much of a gamer, but I do remember inviting myself around to my one person I knew at the time who had a Nintendo. I I wouldn't if uh, now I wouldn't recommend GoldenEye. I don't personally gel with it, but I think that's just because the N sixty four controller is so hard to navigate, and you need really big hands, and you need to be able to move your fingers in ways that aren't humanly possible to properly do it. So I have huge respect for the people that do. Um, I I'm not much of a gamer. I I was when I was much younger, but it was like um, the ZX Spectrum in those days. And uh, Manic Miner, you've probably never heard of it, sure. The, uh, the other day, uh, I did break out one of my games, uh, Bloodstone. Great game. Just to, I quite enjoyed that. I, I didn't play it for long because I never had time. There's a, the, the sad thing with that game was that they released it the same day as the remake of GoldenEye. So it sort of fell under the radar. But there's a really, there's some yeah. really good aspects of that game that were overlooked. That. Um, it was the better I'd... of the two, surely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I could talk. I could talk for hours about James Bond games, but particularly the, the one that I would always recommend to someone is Nightfire because you've got a great story and you've got a great multiplayer as well that you can play with friends. And you can play with bots, and it, they, there's still quite a particular. I, I here on PC, I don't have a PC, I have a Mac, but um, I believe there's still quite a community that keeps the game going, so it's still relatively easy to find and play i think we've probably put together a maybe not such so much a care package either it's weighing down with all of our own publications <laughs> and all of the films and the books mm. no no the, the real way to go at the end of the day is forget everything and just watch james bond jr <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of great uh, action the, the views of some of the podcasters don't represent the views of OSS no, but perhaps what we've learned more is that we could be proud of our subject matter expertise and um, we can also just throw people in the deep end <laughs> and tell them <laughs> have fun. So thank you everyone for joining me on the I, I kind of missed the meandering, unformulaic versions and when the conversations get going, they get going. So yeah. Oh yeah. I, 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 I love this conversation. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. We're not a quiet group. <laughs> we're allowed to be opinionated but also respectful is that was that the was that the, the rule yeah Lisa? that sounds great <laughs> just not just not too judgy about the fact that you <laughs> thank you guys so we appreciate your support thank you take care I'm thank you bye-bye bye yes and no i'm gonna kiss some part of i'm gonna keep this secret I'm gonna close my body now I guess die another day 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 I guess I'll die another day another I guess
guess, I guess I'll die. I'm not a day, day, I guess I'll die. I guess I'll die. Another day, another guess I'll die. I guess I'll die. Another day, I'm gonna break the cycle. I'm gonna shake up the system. I'm gonna destroy my ego. I'm gonna close my body now. I think I'll find another way. There's so much more to know. So much more to know. I guess I'll die another day. It's not my time to go. I'm gonna avoid the cliche. I'm gonna suspend my senses. I'm gonna